Good morning, everyone. Pleasure to sing the praises to our great God today. Isn't that great? Yeah, yeah. You guys had a late night last night, I see. What a blessing. It's a blessing to be with you. It's a blessing to share God's word. And uh, just one announcement before we get started. Just wanted to say that uh, Bob Roche is uh, part of the elder team now. Um, so praise the Lord for that and look forward to having him just uh, keep doing what he's doing and serving the Lord. So um, yeah, it's great. Man, God is amazing. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are so good, that you are our Father, that you're the one who has saved us. You're the one who, who has provided all good things for us and that you, you are on the throne, that you are in control, that the things that you allow that are painful, you can redeem to chasten us, to correct, to condition us so that we will be more like you, that we would honor and, and magnify your name in this world. We thank you for Jesus Christ and that he sent uh, the Holy Spirit to fill us and to uh, em empower us to do your will. And we thank you for the revelation of your truth and your word and, and that we can be part of a body that's connected to Jesus who is our head. That you, you're to govern our actions, that the love of Christ is to, to uh, direct and guide rather than the letter of the law. And thank you, Lord, that you are the greatest, that nothing in this world compares to you, that you have shaken heavens and earth and will shake them again, and yet we can remain immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because of what Jesus has done, and upon him we build our lives in faith. Just thank you for this time and ask for your, your spirit to minister your word to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. When I first came to Oz, I was uh, loaned a car by the rodents. Uh, a Mitsubishi Lancer, I believe. And we were driving along Castle Hill Road and uh, we're in, involved in a five-car pileup. And uh, thankfully, nobody was injured. I cannot say the same for the car. Uh, the bonnet was, was crumpled. The back window was smashed in. And uh, with the help of friends, tape, and some cling wrap, we made it roadworthy uh, out of necessity, because that was a Saturday, and Sunday was the next day, and that was my transport, so it's like, well, it, it'll have to do. So we made it work, and um, because of the age of the vehicle, it was obvious it was going to be written off, but it was tempered somewhat by, uh, it wasn't my fault, and that it was nearing the end of its lifespan, like it wasn't brand new. Uh, so it made it a little bit easier, still feel bad about it, but I, I think about the world. You know, the world is passing away. The things that God has made, they, are re they will reach an end. There will be a time where they will dissolve. They will be wrapped up. And uh, he will establish a new heaven and new earth where only righteousness dwells. And think about the new things you may have, that new role, that new career, that new car, that new house. Well, it's not going to be new forever, and it's going to pass away the health that you have, that's going to pass away. Everything that we possess in this world that's of the world, it will not endure. But the things that God gives us, Him, it does not, it will endure. And it's, it's tragic if we look back upon the past and we're filled with regret about a life that was marred with sin, like a life before Christ. That would be tragic because we've been given a new life through Christ, a life that's enduring because he makes all things new. 
Esau, he despised the birthright of being the son of Isaac. There was a danger. The Hebrews, they would despise their birthright of being children of God, being born again. They would return to the law as a way to prove themselves righteous, uh, seeking forgiveness by the shed blood of animals and by offering sacrifices, by going back to that old obsolete system to find righteousness before God when it had been given by Christ through His sacrifice. Jesus is infinitely greater than Moses because He is the Messiah, the one who has come. So we're picking up in Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 18. And the passage here, it's directed at those who would have known intimately what had happened on Sinai. Hebrews 12, 18, For you have not come to the mountain that may be, t- may be touched and that burned with fire into blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore, for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. The Hebrew readers of this epistle, they had experienced painful trials. They had experienced persecution for Christ. Perhaps they felt like it was safer, it was better to return to the law and avoid this persecution. That they imagined God was against them. Like, we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but following Him is costing us a lot, and it doesn't seem to be accomplishing anything. And the writer pointed out previously that they had forgotten that God chastens His beloved children, like a father, the son in whom He delights. That feeling of being punished, they were wondering if they were being punished for their sins. It was actually chastening from a father who had adopted them, who had chosen them, and accepted them on the basis of their faith in Christ. It wasn't they were being rejected or punished by God. They were being guided by Him, instructed, conditioned to be strong in the faith, to keep going when things were tough. Fruitful trees, they're not being punished when they're pruned that they would be more fruitful. They're being pruned because they're fruitful, and it's so that they would be even more fruitful. God does discipline us to correct us and condition and to strengthen us. And he has this customized uh, chastening that he has for each person. Because he he knows where he's taking you. He knows where you're going to end up with him. And he knows how he's going to use you. The writer directed this Hebrew audience thinking back to when the law was given. And it was a terrifying sight that... Sinai's quaking, it's on fire. If you could turn there, turn to Exodus chapter 19, starting in verse 16. We read of this divine revelation, and we'll be in Exodus for a a little bit. See, Moses was not a charlatan like some who sequester themselves in a closed room and come out with a supposed revelation from God or a, a prophetic vision from an angel. God revealed himself to the nation all at once so that they would know for sure that he had heard from God. God said, this is why, the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. So it wasn't like Moses like, hey guys, I was at the burning bush and I heard this, and that was where it ended. God's like, I'm going to speak before everybody so that they will believe that you're hearing from me. They're going to hear me too. And they said, we don't want to hear him anymore. He's frightening. He's so powerful. 
The people were instructed to bathe, to uh, wash their clothes, to abstain from marital relations for three days before God would appear. A boundary was set around the mountain. They said if anything transgresses this boundary, it needs to be shot through. This is a holy place because God is coming. And it says in Exodus 19, verse 16, Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. You have this remarkable scene. Thunder, lightning, the thick cloud, the trumpet blast, it's just getting louder and louder. And then a voice of God in response to Moses. So Moses speaks, and then God responds. And it had a great effect on the people. It says they trembled, and they're like, Moses, you go talk with God. This is the God who had just recently doled out those 10 disastrous plagues upon the Egyptians and their gods. And now here he is, and they're meeting with him. And it was terrifying. I really appreciate there's no video or film of this because uh, people today would find reasons to believe it's not true, but it happened. It's real. Uh, this was a genuine encounter with God. Moving on to chapter 20, verse 18. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. We really want God to speak to us, don't we? But the sight of God and his power was so much that they're like, we don't want him to speak to us. He is so powerful and great. Moses, you speak with him. Moses communed with God. His presence, it was like a, a consuming fire on Sinai. He received the commandments. And while that's going on, the fear of God had been put into the people, right, with this scene. Was that enough to keep them from sin? No. Quickly they turned out of the way, despite their trembling on that day when his appearance was before them. It says in Exodus 32.1, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who was brought up us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. God's not even in the picture anymore. They're just thinking about, well, Moses is gone. We don't know where he is. Make us gods to go before us. Gods that have to be carried. Gods that are made out of man's fashioning and design. Not gods at all. But they were willing to trade it because they didn't know where Moses was. That fear of God, that, that momentary fear, it was a temporary deterrent that carnal minds and rebellious hearts quickly forgot. 
So the flow of this passage, it continues on like much of the book. The author began by proving that Jesus is greater than the angels because God has ascribed more glory to him in that he told angels to worship Christ. Jesus is far greater than David or Moses because David, Jesus is David's Lord and the King of Kings, and he's the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. All high priests, they had a limited uh, time operating in that role, but the role of Melchizedek, it was an eternal priesthood. Jesus offered himself up once and for all, whereas the priests, they were offering up uh, sacrifices that could not permanently remove sins because they had to be done day after day after day. But the sacrifice Jesus did was once and for all, complete. And then he sat down at the right hand of the Father, the work of atonement finished, done. He's a minister of a better covenant in his blood that trumped the covenant of law. He's made a new and living way for mankind to draw near to God, that we would have the Holy Spirit within us. We would be the temple of the Holy Spirit. That through him we have this forgiveness of sins and eternal salvation that was not on offer under the law. There was no promise of eternal life if you made a sacrifice. Because Jesus has sacrificed himself, we have eternal life. And we can know we have that by his grace. Continuing in Hebrews 12, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion. Before he's talking about Sinai. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. They are reminded of the supremacy of the new covenant over the old covenant. The covenant of law was given on Mount Sinai in the wilderness. This new covenant, it's on Mount Zion. That's the hill where Jerusalem sits, where God has put his name. But Mount Zion speaks more even to the eternal place in heaven where God is prepared for those who love him. By what Jesus accomplished on Calvary, those who believe, it's like we are caught up to this living God in the heavenly Jerusalem. It says right there, um, we have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. We're not told to keep our distance. We're told to draw near. Jesus has made a way for us to draw near to God. Guzik wrote this, Our relationship with God is not modeled after Israel's experience on Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai was all about an old covenant based on earning and deserving. Mount Zion is based on a new covenant with Jesus the mediator based on believing and receiving. Totally different economy that God has instituted by his grace. On Sinai, God's power was revealed with the thunder, the lightning, the fire. It was a deterrent to sin. The power of God was revealed in Jesus providing himself as a sacrifice for sin, that we could be forgiven forever, that we could be um, born again and now be sitting in the heavenlies with Christ. Wouldn't you love for God to reveal himself with a voice that shakes the heaven just to, you know, put the fear of God into people, just to have, hey, there is a God. He is real. 
He is, he's the one to follow. He's the one to believe. But God's chosen to reveal his power in something perhaps less dramatic, the love of his people, the transformation of a, a sinning heart into one that fears and loves God and loves others, the unity of the saints, changed minds. Any person who crossed that barrier and touched Sinai was to be shot through. We deserve death for our transgressions. But listen to what it says in Ephesians 2, 4 through 7, because of what Jesus has done. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Spiritually speaking, positionally, we are seated with him. That work of atonement has been complete. We have been made new. We are born again. We are his. We talk about being heaven bound in one day. Well, we are already there in a spiritual sense. We are with him. We have fellowship with him and closeness. And what's mentioned in Hebrews, with an innumerable company of angels to a general assembly, church of the firstborn, who are registered in heaven. I like that, registered. All, all whose names are not written in the book of life will ultimately be cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 21, 27, it says, in the, of the eternal state in the presence of God, but there shall by no means enter into it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Eternal life we have through Christ, and we're seated with him now by grace because of what he's done, because of his great love for us. We were already dead because of our sin. We had already been shot through. We were done, but he is made a way for us to know him, to have eternal life. Is your name registered in heaven? It's so important that we cannot have heaven without Jesus. When you think about heaven, you can think about, well, what will we do there? And who will we see? And what will we remember? And how will a daily routine look like when there's no night and it's day all the time? When we're not governed by time and alarms and work and a schedule. Some of the shine can be taken off heaven when we think about who might not be there. But Hebrews does not entertain this for a moment. It says that we will come to angelic beings, to Old Testament and New Testament saints, justified by faith in God, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks of better things than of Abel. Jesus calls himself the door through whom we enter into eternal life. But you know, we should never treat Jesus like a door. We can treat him like a door. It's like, what, how do you use a door? It's just a means to get from one side to the other. You see the door, you open the door, you enter, you close the door, you turn your back on the door and keep going. That's not how we're supposed to treat Jesus. He's the one that we're going to. There's no other angel or person named in this passage, and I think that's fitting because he's the, he's the most worthy. 
He is the focal point. He's the reason why we're there, and he's the one to whom we go, who we will worship, whom we will serve. He is our mediator, our intercessor, and our savior. Compared with him, no one else is worthy to be mentioned by name because he, he is our sacrifice. Abel, he offered the first sacrifice that's recorded as accepted by God. Christ's blood shed on Calvary is the last. There's no other sacrifice because of his. Greater than his, his is like the last, the final sacrifice he has received, and nothing can be added to that. We are forgiven because of what he has accomplished. God had respect unto Abel, and thus his offering. God respected his son. He said, this is my beloved son in whom I will please. His voice heard after he was baptized or on the Mount of Transfiguration. He sprinkled many nations, including us. And we who are seated with Christ in the heavens today thank him for all that he has done how faithful he is, how gracious. Picking up in Hebrews 12, 25. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, how much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth? But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. You ever heard people uh, separate the God of the Old Testament, the God in the New Testament, to some false dichotomy? Of like, oh, well, he, he used to be pretty rough in the old days, but he's softened a bit. He's not quite as aggressive as he used to be. Now, that's like claiming that the specialist surgeon that you met in the consulting office who has some charts and is smiling to you and telling you how you're going to be better after the surgery is a different person because he's wielding the scalpel in the theater. It's the same person. It doesn't matter what they're administering, whether they're giving you a prognosis or telling you uh, what you need to do before the surgery, during the surgery, after, it's the same person. We can focus on something differently, but the reality is, same person, same care, even though it hurts at times to be chastened by the Lord. It is painful. It gets our attention because he wants us to go in the right way. That's good for us and brings him glory. God is not graceless or unloving years ago or more compassionate and gentle because he's altogether good, he's righteous, and he does not change. His character is the same. That voice, that boom from Sinai in the view of the consuming fire and the voice that said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, it's the same God. To Jews tempted to return to the law, it's the voice of God who said to them, it is finished from the cross. Same God speaking forth. He talks about those who disobeyed or refused to trust him under the old covenant, they were unable to escape. I think about Korah and the rebels, right? The ground opened up against, uh, underneath them and swallowed them up. Those who tried to fight their way into Canaan, Moses was like, don't try it. You will not succeed in this. Well, they, they fell as they fled from their enemies. That entire generation that refused to enter, they perished in the wilderness, right? They did not escape. Not even Moses escaped that. The same Lord of the earth 
that Jonah could not escape when he was tracked down in the dark belly of a ship heading to Tarshish is the same God who speaks to us today. So if you couldn't escape him under the law, you are not going to escape him when he speaks to you now. He speaks from heaven, yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this promise is found in Haggai chapter 2, if you'll turn there. It's in the Minor Prophets. I love that uh, God speaks to us as his beloved children who he knows forgets what he has said and why he has said it. And we get such great insight from Haggai into this passage in Hebrews. Now, a little bit about Haggai. He was a prophet of God who uh, was likely born during that 70-year captivity of the Hebrews in Babylon. Haggai's ministry, it took place around 520 AD. He was a contemporary of the prophet Zechariah. Jews who feared God returned from captivity. They began to rebuild the temple. But the issue was they were really self-centered and they were focused on getting their own affairs in order. They were very preoccupied with that and they had neglected the building of the temple. And so the worship of God couldn't be done until the temple was built and it was sanctified and, and they were ready. Like that was a huge thing. Like God brought them out. God was faithful to his word, but they were really more concerned about the paneling on the inside of their houses than the house of God being rebuilt so that they could worship him, so that they could offer sacrifices to him again under law. So Haggai's like, hey, consider your ways. Look at how you're living. Look at who you're focused on. You're focused on yourselves. You're working really hard, but you're not getting much out of it because you're not putting God first. And the people listened. They joined together, and God stirred them. And when the people obeyed, it's so awesome. It's like God said, I am with you. He reminded them, I'm with you. They needed to hear that, and we need to hear that. Haggai 2, verse 1. In the seventh month, on the 21st of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear, for thus says the Lord of hosts. Once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. The Hebrews who received this letter found themselves in a similar situation. In the book of Haggai, it says, Those who saw the first temple built by Solomon, they were a bit disappointed by the appearance of the second temple coming out of captivity. It lacked the size. It lacked the precious stones. It didn't have gold everywhere. 
It didn't have those massive brazen pillars, the carvings, the imported stone. In comparison, this one did not impress. And they're like, hmm, this, this is not as grand as the previous one. And they were a bit disappointed. Now, Moses and the covenant of law, that was a historical monument bigger than the Temple Mount. I mean, thinking about God writing on his fingers on those tablets of stone, the, the law, that they were God's chosen people, that he had made a covenant with them with this consuming fire on the mountain. I mean, people look back to that as like, that was awesome. That was incredible. Comparing that with following a man from Nazareth who had a humble following, who was crucified and condemned by Jewish rulers for blasphemy. Compare the two. <laughs> Moses is this legend, but who's this guy? Jesus? He didn't look so grand in comparison to the law, where all the Jews are still strong about the law, pushing it, upholding it. The command of Zerubbabel, the governor, Joshua, the high priest, and the people was to be strong and work for I am with you. My spirit remains among you. Do not fear. That temple that they were looking at, it was going to be glorious in due time. God would shake the heaven, earth, and all nations, and God would fill this temple. So the temple they were looking at with his glory, and it would be none other than Jesus who would be there as a baby. Now, this Haggai quote, it's an example of partial or multiple fulfillments in Scripture. Luke said that Jesus is the glory of Israel when Simon was led by the Holy Spirit to go in there on the day when he was being circumcised. Simon, it says, he held Jesus in his arms and, and said this in Luke 2, 29 through 32, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Compared to the law, to Moses, to that temple and that renovated temple mount, that little baby did not seem so glorious, but there he was, the glory of Israel, the glory of the whole earth. God's salvation prepared for all people who would die on the cross and rise again in glory. That temple that stood, that had the glory of the Lord in it when Jesus was there, was destroyed in 70 AD. The Temple Mount, we read, is not a place of peace today. But the writer affirmed, God is going to again shake the earth. He's going to shake the heavens. And Jesus, he speaks of his return to earth after the great tribulation in Matthew 24, 29, and 30. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So Jesus comes as a suffering servant. He will come as a conquering king, a mighty ruler, those who see Jesus as perpetually meek and mild, like in the song, Away in a Manger, which is a sweet song. I mean, he was a baby, so okay, meek and mild. But they, those people who see him perpetually that way have not read Zechariah 14 or Revelation 19, where he is coming to destroy those who rise up against him. He will destroy his enemies utterly. It talks about in 
Zechariah, I mean, it's like, whoa, okay, this, this plague of fire that comes out where people's eyes are being dissolved in their sockets and their tongues and their mouths, that is pretty awe-inspiring and fearful. That's a fearsome thing to say. So do not refuse him who speaks. He's, he's letting them know. He's saying, hey, that was, that was crazy when God appeared in power on Sinai, but he is going to appear with power that blows that out of the water. There's no comparison. So if they didn't escape, what makes you think you can escape if you do not listen to him? There will be glory revealed in Christ that no one can deny. He is God. Hebrews 12, 27. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, and the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. God shakes the earth. He shakes the heavens so that all that is in them, that shakes, will be removed. I think about when you were a kid and you were playing ball and you kicked it up in the tree and it got lodged up there. For whatever reason, you were throwing your hat or kicking your shoe and it just stuck. And you're like, ah! And, and you couldn't climb it, so you start shaking it, right? You shake the tree to remove the object that could be shaken from the tree. In life, there are things that can be shaken, and there are things that cannot be shaken. And sometimes, if you've ever put your trust in or leaned on something that can be shaken, and it's shaken, guess who's shaken? You. You are shaken. Because you were leaning on something that can be shaken. Our bodies can shake. Anger, we can shake with anger. We can shake in fear. We can shake because of illness, because we feel cold. We shake. That trust of another person, betrayal, can shake that trust. But the love of God, nothing in the world can shake that. That will endure. All things in and of this world will be shaken, ultimately removed. The things that cannot be shaken will remain. God, his word, his promises, his love, his glorious plans, his perfect peace, those stand fast, immovable, unshakable. God shakes the world and things in it so that we'll realize, all right, this is not stable. This cannot support me. That rotten plank that I think can support my weight that everyone seems to trust in, that will not support me. That cannot help me. And so you, you don't put your faith in that thing. A ship, when it's on the, the sea, it is shaken, sometimes broken apart by the waves. But Christians, we don't need to be shaken in the storm because our faith is founded on that cornerstone of Jesus Christ. Like it says this in uh, 1 Corinthians 15. This is the conclusion about the, the immortality that we will be clothed with by God's grace. In 1 Corinthians 15, 57 and 58, but thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. We don't have to be shaken by the things that shake the world because we're founded on Christ by grace. 
One thing we can add to this cannot be shaken list is the kingdom of God. This passage says that we are receiving this kingdom. It's like we're receiving it now. We will one day receive it fully when we have the new bodies and are in his presence. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is compared at times to a mustard seed that starts very small, but it grows into a tree that could accommodate birds. And it takes faith to look at that little seed and say, uh, this is a future sparrow hotel in disguise. It doesn't look like it could support life. It doesn't look like things could nestle in its branches because look, it's this tiny thing, but it will grow. We're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken because God's eternal. He has authority over all. By his power, all things exist and consist for his good pleasure. And since, so he's brought us this point. Since we're receiving this unshakable kingdom, let us have grace. Is that the conclusion you would have thought? It's like cower in fear before God's might. Well, we should fear God, but let us have grace. Let us hold on to grace. Let us walk in grace. With the privileges freely given us by the kingdom of God, we have a duty to hold on to grace. With privileges in this country, we have as citizens, I became a dual citizen, my family and I, And as a dual citizen before God, I had to say a pledge. And I pledged loyalty to Australia and its people, whose democratic beliefs I share, whose rights and liberties I respect, and laws I will uphold and obey. To become a citizen of this country, that's something you must agree to and seek to uphold yourself. But saying those words on the day doesn't necessarily make me a good citizen, right? I have to actually do them. I have to walk in it. Australia cannot afford the grace that God gives by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without grace, it's impossible to serve God. Let that be stamped upon your hearts. We need God's grace to serve Him. Some imagine that grace is a bit dangerous. It gives a bit of a license to sin. That's not what the Bible says. Grace actually provides reverence and godly fear. The law couldn't do that. Grace does. You guys read negative articles or reports about the church. Numbers are declining and it's irrelevant or heresies have crept in or fellowships are folding and And we have perhaps experienced painful situations from church breakups or or, uh, pastoral issues. We've seen young people and old people fall away from faith in Christ. Yet we're not shaken because the church will endure. It has been built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. That cannot be shaken. He cannot be shaken. Now, the church may not be, in your eyes, that grand edifice that it was centuries ago where we could read a revival or we can read of great throngs of people who were moved by the Holy Spirit. When God shakes the heavens and the earth again, the church and the word we proclaim will stand fast. It will remain immovable. 
and by God's grace, we will stand too. Turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Peter 1, verse 25, as we close. Man, on our, on our own, we are shaky. We cannot bear the burdens that are put upon us. But Christ, we can be casting our cares upon him because he cares for us. And he does so because he is gracious and compassionate and full of mercy. He speaks to us not to destroy us, but to save and to redeem and to help and provide hope that we forget about because we're shaken. We don't need to be. 1 Peter 1 verse 25 Continuing to the next chapter. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Therefore laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also... As living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. The church is the body of Christ. We are those living stones that comprise the body of Christ, the temple of God, built up into a spiritual house and a holy priesthood by His grace. We're to put off sin. We're to have grace that we may serve God with reverence and godly fear because He is a consuming fire, because we know Him, because we have heard Him, and because we love Him because He first loved us. This world, really, it's a write-off because it's been corrupted by sin. Praise the Lord, we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So, the conclusion is, let us have grace. You don't need to worry about the ungrace of others. You be gracious. You walk in the grace of God. You let that work in you, that reverence and godly fear. Praise the Lord, we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let's do as the scripture says, have grace, lay aside all sin, desire the pure milk of the word that we may grow by it. God gave the law on Mount Sinai as a consuming fire. The same God has laid in Zion a chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ, that cannot be moved. He is eternal. He is worthy of us putting our faith in him. He will never be shaken and none who trust in him need be shaken, whose names are registered in heaven. It's like we have our heavenly booking, we know where we're going, and we know who is with us right now because God has said, I am with you. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you are with us, that you have made us the temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, that we can say, we have beheld your glory. And Lord, uh, we may not have seen eyes, put eyes on Jesus in person but oh, how your word unfolds his reality to us and how we see our need for him. And having trusted in him, we find security and prosperity and help in a hopeless world, in a broken world. And we have been redeemed 
by your grace. We have been changed and transformed and born again. And thank you for that work that you do and that you have done and are doing. Lord, you are so awesome and we are so forgetful. We are so shaky. I, I am so shaky. I pray, Lord, that you would turn our eyes to you again. You would remind us of your truth, your goodness, and your ways, and that the things that are shaking, Lord, we would not focus on those anymore, but on Christ, who is our Savior, who is our King, after the order of Melchizedek. Thank you, Lord, that you have spoken to us, and I ask, Lord, that during this week, as we seek you, you would speak to us, that as we open your word, it would minister your truth to our hearts, and we would walk renewed lives in, in light of what you've said, that we would put faith in your word, not just say that we believe, but that our lives would show it, and that we would have grace, that we would serve you acceptably with godly fear. Lord, we fear you, um, not because you will destroy us, and not because you'll destroy this word world, but because you have spoken to us, and because you are good, and your mercy endures forever. Lord, I pray you would uphold and strengthen the things that remain, that uh, the feeble knees would be strengthened, the, the hands that are hanging down, they would once again grip that plow without looking back and follow Jesus because you are our King, you are our Savior, and you are with us. You will never leave or forsake us, and no one can snatch us out of your hand. So we magnify you, Lord, we praise you, and I thank you for this opportunity to proclaim your truth, and may you uh, proclaim through our lives your glorious goodness and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.